Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Cell Helmet. As seen on Shark Tank, Cell Helmet makes premium wireless accessories that help keep your devices safe and charged while spending time outdoors. From screen protection, cables, power banks, car and wall chargers, wireless chargers, and car mounts to hold your phone while you navigate through the mountains or coastline, Cell Helmet has something for everyone. All of the products come with a lifetime warranty, yes, you heard that right, as well as same free day shipping. One of my favorite products I sell is their liquid glass. It's an invisible screen protector that you simply pour onto your screen and then rub in. Glass is a porous material and the liquid glass fills in the pores, making your phone screen stronger on a molecular level. It comes with a $100 screen repair guarantee and the Liquid Glass Pro comes with a $300 guarantee. Head on over to their website at CellHelmet.com and check out their YouTube videos demonstrating the strength of this incredible product. Cell Helmet is offering a 40% off discount code to Anchored listeners. Just go to CellHelmet.com and enter Anchored at checkout. Bob Hooten is one of Canada's most informed and long-standing steelhead advocates. As a BC government fish biologist, he spent almost 40 years in office fighting to save our fisheries. Recently, Bob has published another book titled Days of Rivers Past. In this episode, we discuss Bob's career, his books, and where our fishery is headed today. You can find Bob's book at the BC Federation of Fly Fishers, where all proceeds will be donated to the organization and steelhead-related projects. I'll include the link in this episode's write-up. So born in Vancouver, and dare I ask what year? (laughs) You can ask. (laughs) Uh, It was a baby boomer, let's put it that way, uh, 1946. Okay, excellent. How did you get into fishing? Well, you know, I talk about this actually a bit in the book, but, uh, you know, from from my earliest recollections, you know, uh, being around fish and water somehow was uh, some kind of a magnetic force for me, you know, so uh, it just seemed to come naturally somehow. But it's not as if, uh, you know, I was pushed in that direction or anything like that. It just, uh, you know, there must have been a gene way down in there somewhere that governed all that kind of thing. So which river did you start fishing on? 
Oh, I think, uh, you know, I've got a, a picture that probably goes back to when I was about five years old, and I think, and it was taken on the Quatsi River on the very northern end of Vancouver Island. And, uh, you know, my father at the time was working in with one of the airlines, and he was uh, in Port Hardy on some kind of a maintenance mission there for whichever airline that was. And we ended up, the Quatsi River is right there beside the air, the airport. So uh, we somehow... Here we are dragged out on the banks of the Quatsi River and there's this picture of my, my father and I sort of standing there, you know, with a little hand line kind of thing, flinging this thing into the Quatsi River, you know. Do you remember be- thinking to yourself, this is something I just, I want to do more of? No, not necessarily. I mean, uh, you know, if, I mean, as a kid growing up in Vancouver, I used to read the, the daily newspapers all the time, you know, and they had the outdoors writers for the province that was Mike Cram and for the Vancouver Sun, it was Lee Street, you know, and so you, you kind of get pulled into that. I mean, that was the today's equivalent of the internet, if you will, you know, and a couple of websites or something like that. But uh, I used to read those columns and be sort of captivated by all the stories about, you know, the the heroes of the day that wrote on the, you know, the Vetter and the Thompson and, you know, going over to Anchor Island and all that kind of stuff and coming home with tales of glory and blah, 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 you know. So, I mean, that that sort of planted a seed, I suppose, and uh, kept me interested and, and uh I was lucky enough that essentially the first time that I ever went serious steelhead fishing was on the Chehalis River. Mm. And uh, I actually caught a steelhead that day. Very first time that I ever really tried. And, and boy, the, the die was cast from that point forward. That's for sure. You know, so. Do you know how old you were or like where, when about? Oh yeah, that was, uh, that was in 1963. And, uh, I don't know what was I do the math. I don't know. It was like 16 or something like that at the time, I guess, you know, so. Okay, and you went out there by yourself, or it was no, a family no, trip I, as well? uh, I wasn't, uh, I didn't have a driver's license yet, so, uh, my dad took myself and, uh, one of the kids that I used to chum around with a whole bunch in South Burnaby there, and away we went, and climbed down in the canyon there, and I actually had a, a fiberglass fly rod with a spinning reel taped on the handle. Oh, wow. And, okay. uh, <laughs> you know, Waited out into, you know, to a bar out in the middle of the river and Lord knows how we ever got there successfully. But, uh, you know, there was a little ditch on the other side of it and dropped a, you know, a hook with a, a shot weighted leader with uh, a couple of single eggs on the hook. And lo and behold, a fish grabbed it, you know. <laughs> now, how did you guys hear about the Chehalis? Both through, you know, reading the newspapers, That's you know. What I thought. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was still a, a relatively popular river back then. Well, there was, uh, you know, the two rivers you used to hear about all the time, you know, on a weekly basis were the Vedder and the, and the Chehalis, so, you know, so. Were they writing about up north at that point, like the Skeena tributaries? No, no, you'd have to really search deep to find anything about that part of the world at that time, that's for sure. Okay, so you're fishing the Chehalis and you get a steelhead and now it's in your blood, you must have this. Yeah, you know, and, and I was a frequent flyer on the Vedder, you know, for several years after that until I moved to Vancouver Island, you know, so I would like to say that I did my apprenticeship on the Lower Mainland, you know, and if you, uh, if you're a successful graduate of the Lower Mainland School of Steelhead Fishing, well, you know, you're pretty well <laughs> tooled to be applying those skills elsewhere in the province very successfully. Yes. What was it like fishing on the Veteran and the Chilliwack back then? It was busy. Yeah, yeah it was busy. I mean, uh, I think, you know, people look at today's pressure and they think that, uh, you know, it's unprecedented, but, but it isn't. 
the vetter was a busy, busy place back in the in the sixties mm-hmm. when I first started going there. And uh, when, when you wrote that in your book that it was busier in the sixties than it is now, that really actually threw me off. Yeah, well, it uh, you know that's the, the kind of things that people don't realize. The fishery in today's world is much more concentrated, I think, in time than than it ever was historically. But if you look at the total number of, the, of people who bought licenses and actually went steelhead fishing, you know, in the 60s and 70s, there was more of them than there is today. Do you think it's because they could kill wild steelhead back then? Well, you know, it was uh, there was no such thing as catch and release. I mean, uh, you know, people went fishing to get their fish, their limit. Then it was down tools for the day, you know, and they'd go back to places like, uh, you know, the Vetter Crossing store and all that kind of stuff and sign the book and maybe take a picture or something like that, you know, and brag it up for the rest of the day and yeah. <laughs> do it again tomorrow. <laughs> Kind of sounds still like today in December on the better. Well, yeah, and and you know, I haven't paid a lot of attention to it in recent times. But if you go back and look at the uh, the the Boxing Day Derby results, for example, mm-hmm. and uh, how they compare today with what they were in the earlier times, you know, and uh, totally different. You know, there's just nowhere near the abundance of that front half of the run that there was back in those days. But I wonder how much of that has to do with the hatchery. I mean, obviously it's a shifting, there there aren't as many fish, but do you know when the hatchery was put in? No, I'm going to say it was probably uh, mid-70s. So afterwards, yeah. So they would have yeah. just been killing everything back then. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the common perception among the fisheries managers and the anglers of the day was that, uh, you know, the resource was uh, unaffected by angling pressure. Mm-hmm. That's actually going to be the basis or, or the focal point of this episode of, of the podcast. So we're definitely going to be getting back to that. First, let's learn a little bit more about you. You obviously finished high school. You were an avid angler throughout school. Uh, yeah. Whenever the opportunity presented, I'd try and get out there, you know. Yeah, and then enter college. Charter student at uh, Simon Fraser University, and I got a degree, a science degree, a bachelor of science degree, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I the cyclical kind of arrangement of uh, education and job markets and all that kind of stuff. You know, I got out of there at a bad time. You know, the job market was pretty poor for anybody with a, a brand new shiny college degree and all that. I ended up working in a sawmill for more than a year, actually. Okay. After I graduated, you know, and, and then finally managed to uh, get an introduction to one of the uh, fisheries heads over in Victoria mm-hmm. through a, a neighbor of mine. And the guy took a... A risk and hired me and, you know, the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So did you always want to be a steelhead biologist? No. Well, you know, I suppose if, if you had asked me back in, uh, you know, 1970, I would have leaped at the opportunity. You know, I'm not sure there even was such a thing at that point, you know, but uh, when I first started in uh, provincial government in 1971, it was a pretty sparse operation. You know, it was all in one building at the foot of Wharf Street in Victoria. You know, there wasn't even a, such a thing as regional offices at that time. Those came oh. through the early and mid-70s. And so if, if there wasn't a steelhead biologist back then, what was it, just fisheries biologists in general? or Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, you think about it, you know, if you had the entire provincial fisheries complement clustered in one building and in fact it was one floor of one building it was the fourth floor of the dogwood building at the foot of wharf street in in victoria that was it for all of bc that was it your office only managed freshwater fisheries is that right right okay and then who was on who was in charge of the ocean that's dfo oh yeah that was the federal government then and, and now 
Okay. It gets real, and we'll get into this later, but it does get really confusing because different governments manage different fisheries, right? Yeah. Tidal versus non-tidal waters, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It gets messy. It gets very messy. Okay. So back to you then. Um, you start working. And what you do? Oh, I started off, you know, they sent us to the East Kootenays to work on the Elk River, you know, because at that time, um, all the strip coal mining developments were on the drawing board and only just barely beginning. Okay. So there was very little information, you know, on uh, fish populations and invertebrate populations in the Elk River. So they sent us out there to do a bunch of that sort of preliminary work. We did a little bit of creel survey work on, on the Elk River at the same time. So, you know, it sort of started from there, and when that wound down at the end of the sort of the field season, went back to Victoria, worked out of there for a while, and uh, eventually it didn't look like it was going anywhere, so I decided I was going to go back to school and get a teaching degree. Oh, okay. So I went to Simon Fraser and uh, got into what they called their PDP or their professional development program, and I did that for about, I don't know, maybe three months or something like that until they sent me downtown Vancouver on a practicum. <laughs> I'll never forget that. You know, so here I was at a school. It's, it's been since been torn down, but it was called Princess Margaret. Oh yeah. I mean, it seemed to me the students were about the same age that I was. Okay. You know, and and I can remember walking down the hall, sort of between classes or at lunchtime or something like that. You know, and and uh, listening to some pretty interesting comments from you know the the oldest complement of female students there. Right. And I thought to myself, <laughs> you know what. Uh, this ain't me. <laughs> got it. <laughs> so I got out of that and, uh, and, you know, went back and, you know, was working in a sawmill again and, uh, eventually got an opportunity to go, uh, back and work with the government based out of Victoria. And I sort of seized that and, uh, you know, was continuously employed from then until I retired in, you know, what, 2008. Okay. At that point, you're still in Vancouver. Yeah, I was, you know, I was, I, I suppose I'd call home Vancouver at that point, but I, I actually did move to Nanaimo. I lived in Victoria briefly and uh, different places and then uh, eventually moved to Nanaimo. Had they opened an office there or were you working yes, abroad? Yeah, they, uh, the regional offices all opened in uh, maybe 74, somewhere in there. You know, there was a bit of an infusion of budget dollars provincial government wise and, uh, you know, the growing demand for fish and wildlife management and habitat protection and all that kind of thing, you know, so they they regionalized the whole operation and uh, created a bunch of new jobs out there, so. Okay, why the growing demand? What was going on? Well, it was, uh, you know, there was a change in government, you know, so they went from the old social credit regime into the NDP, and the NDP were much more sort of environmentally friendly and at that time, and... uh you know, they were the ones that basically set it up for uh, the regionalization of the, you know, at that time it was a Department of Recreation and Conservation. So the regional office was set up and they, they put a fisheries biologist, a wildlife biologist, and habitat protection biologist in each one of those offices. Okay. And, uh, you know, shortly after that you had, you know, from a fisheries perspective, the big change was that so-called salmonid enhancement program. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of money that showed up, you know, from the federal government. Oh. You know, and uh, the the overlap came on the steelhead front because, okay, you know, I certainly credit forever, you know, the a guy named Ron Thomas, who was the assistant director of the fisheries program provincially at the time. He was astute enough to realize that, well, 
if they're going to realize the objectives of that cell monitor enhancement program, which were to double the supply of Pacific salmon and restore the historic catches to what previous levels and all that kind of stuff, if that was going to happen, it was going to be really hard on steelhead. Mm-hmm. So there had to be some accommodation for the interception of steelhead in the commercial fisheries right. through all this enhancement program and everything. So that's that's how the province got a foot in the door, you know, to tap into a bunch of that money and start doing a whole bunch of steelhead-related work all through the latter half of the 70s and into the 80s. Wow. Okay, that's really interesting. Where does it go from there for, for you and your involvement in the office? Well, okay, so I, you know, I was, uh, there was a position in Nanaimo that, that was a steelhead biologist, sort of the second in command of the fisheries business for the, for the regional office in Nanaimo, and that job went to competition. I was successful in that, and uh, I ended up in Nanaimo for what, uh, 11 years, I guess, before, uh, you know, an opportunity came to move up to the senior position in Smithers. So, okay, I was successful in that regard. So that started, what, I don't know, 13 years in Smithers. At that point, you could still retain wild steelhead. Yeah, the screws had started to be turned, uh, f- you know, for steelhead release. It was it was first on Vancouver Island, you know, and it was sort of a progressive thing, as you might imagine. You know, it, uh, it started with some of the smaller summer steelhead stocks, and then gradually it sort of became obvious that it wasn't just them that required a little bit more protection. It was the winter fish as well, and again, small stocks, and subjected to a lot of pressure, you know, especially in the front half of the season. So the the screws kind of, you know, turned progressively on the catch and release thing. And then, you know, that spilled over into other regions of the province. The southwestern corner of the province, of course, was in worse shape than, you know, the central coast. You know, believe it or not, Bellacoodle was still alive and well, you know, yeah. at that time. And uh, the dean, of course, you know, and then you get on up into Kitimat and, you know, the whole skiing system and everything. Well, you know, there wasn't the same burning need for the conservation measures up there that there was to the south. So it started south and it took a while to catch up in the north. And that was just primarily population or was it commercial projects? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, over time, I think if you look at sort of the, the net increase in fishing traffic on a lot of those rivers, um, you know, especially the Skeena country, it's been steady up. Well, the supply of fish, you know, yeah, it's uh, it varies from year to year and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it never really gets any bigger. You know, you have your good years, make no mistake. But, you know, there's kind of an upper limit. But, okay, so that takes care of the supply side of things. But you get on the demand side of things, there is no limit. Look at us. You know, we're better equipped and more knowledgeable and more capable. We've got better access than at any time in history. There's no more fish. <laughs> right. That's yeah. stayed the same, but we've advanced. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. We're also going to come back to that. Now, was Heg Brown alive at this time? He would have been. Yes. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, I look back on, on my time in the fisheries world in British Columbia and, and, uh, I had the opportunity in 1975 to actually meet Roderick Haig Brown. And, uh, you know, that's among my most memorable moments in, you know, in my time in fisheries. You know, it was to, my my boss at the time was a fellow named George Reed. He had met Hig Brown previously. He'd been on Vancouver Island, based in Nanaimo for I don't know three or four years by the time I got there. And he strongly encouraged me. He said, "Well, just you know, phone up, you know, and and see if you can make an arrangement to go and sit and have a chat with him." So I did. Good. <laughs> and it was that easy, you know. And and uh, you know, I. I still remember sitting in his study or library and, and, and just being awestruck by the collection of books mm. and the man himself, the personality, you know, he was just, 
such an impressive person, you know, you know, so knowledgeable, so methodical, so, you know, philosophical. I mean, it just leaves a lasting impression on you to be able to sit with a person like that, you know, and ask some questions and, and just sit and listen. And did he give you any advice or any insight into maybe where you could take the fisheries? No, not not that so much. I mean, you know, I think his writings spoke for themselves mm-hmm. uh, then and, and all the way through, you know. So, And I had read a lot of his stuff at that point, so there, there were no surprises there. But I was more curious about, you know, his personal experiences with fishing in, in places that we both knew. And I remember clearly asking him about the Heber River because he was a, a big fan of the Heber River at one time. And, of course, it had been just gutted by the logging industry and bc hydro as well at the time you know so you know and the one thing that i i talked about later and was that uh you know i i asked him if he still fished there and he said no he couldn't bring himself to do that anymore he'd seen it at its best and it was just so far below that now and then he went on and he said you know to be honest he said i've been spoiled by fishing in, in iceland Oh, and that's sort of okay. I get it. <laughs> okay, got it. Now, had he ever been up north to Smithers or Skeena region? You know, I I don't recall him ever saying anything about that, and I didn't ask him about it at the time. And I've never read anything about it. Either. Yeah, yeah. So you, however, go to Smithers. Now, what was the demand in Smithers? Why did they send you there, or did you ask to be sent there? No, there was a you know the job came open, and uh, I applied for it, and you know. And, won the competition and away we went. Was the Bulkley a thriving fishery at that point? It was. You know, this was sort of uh, 1986. That was sort of, you know, right on the three strong years of the returns of steelhead to the Skeena River, but also three strong years of high commercial interception of those fish. And, you know, because large populations, you know, if you take 50% of a large population, it's, uh, you know, there's still a lot more fish left over going up the river than there would be 50% of a small population. So 84, 5, and 6 were strong populations. And uh, there was angling expectations built on those years. And those were the years that basically gave rise to a guiding industry. Oh no, that's oh, yeah. a bad combination. Oh yeah, no, it uh, you know, and and I talk about that at some length uh, in my latest book, but um, the whole history of that and how it evolved into what it is today. But you know, there's no doubt that uh, that that was the genesis of the modern day guiding industry in the Skeena system. Well, let's get into it. So you move up there. <laughs> Were you welcomed when you got up there? Uh, yeah, welcomed. I mean, overwhelmed. You know, you figure. Leaving a really nice, comfortable existence on Vancouver Island. Things are going well. We got three kids. They're all, you know, two of them are preschool sort of thing at that time. And, uh, all of a sudden, you know, November 1st, you arrive in Smithers and it's a, a different world. <laughs> you know, November 1st? Why didn't they bring you in there in August or? Before. Well, it just, you know, the transition of, you know, sort of, you know, the, the job competition, the decision making process, and you got to sell a house and, okay. you know, and so buy another one, all this kind of stuff, you know, so that takes a little bit of time. And, uh, you know, as it turned out, it was November 1st when I actually started work up there and, uh, it was winter. Yeah. <laughs> it, they had had snow, you know, a couple of days before and sort of kind of cold and sloppy around there. And it was quite the transition from Vancouver Island. I bet. Had you fished there before? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'd fished yeah. there, you know, quite a bit at, at that point. So I knew full well what I was getting into from that perspective. And I knew a lot of the 
a lot of the key actors of the time, you know, just through my association and network in the, in the sport fishing business. Okay. Were you ambitious to do some change or to make some changes? No, not necessarily. It was, it was just more a case of, you know, getting in there, get your feet on the ground, uh, you know, learn something of the lay of the land and, uh, you know, who's who in the zoo and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and then kind of feeling your way through that. Okay. So you have three great years and then how does this whole guide influx or the supporting of guides really come into play? Well, it was, uh, you know, I mean, good fishing doesn't stay quiet, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, the sort of the increased communication systems that were starting to emerge at the time, you know, and, uh, and, you know, there was one particular fellow that moved into the, into the uh, creamery in Talqua there and set up as, uh, oh, right. you know, that building was still there for a long time. Oh, yeah. 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 And, uh, Anyhow, that, that became the, the first of the sort of modern day guides in that, you know, it wasn't, oh. it wasn't the, you know, like I like to talk about the guys that were there originally and they were just, you know, the locals who they could get a, an angling guide license in a heartbeat, sort of march in the office and belly up and get one. So you open. still needed a guide license? Oh yeah, you needed a guide n- license. Not classified waters. There was no classified waters. Exactly. There was no okay. rod days, nothing like that. Okay. So, and, and the people who had the guide licenses at the time were like, you know, there was a, a CN train engineer, for example, you know, a local real estate agent, you know, another guy that, uh, I don't think he had any other job actually at the time or if he did i don't know what it was but but basically they were just you know a bunch of locals that uh you know did this you know as a seasonal subsidy to their fishing habits or something like that but then along came the new guy okay it's all starting to make sense now yeah and and you know all of a sudden we've got assistant guides so there's you know boats going down the river on a regular basis and the locals are complaining oh what's up with this sort of thing you know you government got to do something about this so what did you do there was a freeze on on the number of guide licenses that were going to be issued. That freeze had been issued, I think, the year I went up there or the year, I think it was the year I went up there. So I think it was 86 that, uh, you know, there would be no more licenses because it was starting to emerge that, oh, well, boy, this guiding thing is getting out of control. you got to do something, you know. So, well, first thing you do is you put a freeze on it, you know. So then uh, my predecessor, who's who remains a, a good friend of mine, as a matter of fact, you know, I just had a beer with him on Friday, you know. Right. Who is that, if I can ask? Mike Whaley. He was the steelhead or the fisheries biologist he up there before the, you? He was the fisheries biologist. He was the head guy, okay. you know, in, in Smithers. When you're in fisheries in Smithers, you know, it's dominated by steelhead. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the reality. Okay. Is know? there a steelhead biologist role? In particular, or is it just fisheries biologist and you're in a steelhead system? Yeah, it's a, you know, there's a head of the fisheries component of the ministry and all that good stuff. But, uh, you know, once again, uh, from a fisheries perspective, the emphasis in that region is definitely steelhead. steelhead yeah. I mean, they do a whole bunch of other good stuff too, mm-hmm. you know, on lakes and, you know, species other than steelhead cutthroat trout for example they've done some really good work on cutthroat trout and mm-hmm. bull trout and you know some lake trout regulations up in atlin country and stuff like that but you know the steelhead is still the sort of the darling of the region if you will and and the fish that captures most of the attention yeah that's for sure yeah. okay so what happened then you you guys need to cut down on some licenses and what did the guide say well, you know, it, it, I mean, everybody was sort of singing from the same sheet to a certain extent, you know, and that, uh, you know, yeah, we recognize that, uh, there needs to be some limits on growth and all that kind of stuff, but, uh, you know, nobody really wanted to 
fix them, not me sort of thing, you know, point the finger elsewhere and all that kind of stuff, you know. So uh, when it became obvious that uh, there were going to be limits, people started to figure out that, ah, you know, you put a limit on that, you're going to increase the value. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, along came the rod day quotas and there's a whole bunch of jiggery pokery that went on there. But uh, at the end of the day, the quotas were far in excess of what they what they justifiably could be, but they were they were carved in stone and they remained unaltered to this day. But who came up with those numbers? Because at this point, it's your jurisdiction now. Yeah, well, the deal was that uh, <clears throat> the 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 rod day quotas would be established on the average of the highest two years between eighty. The three years of record. I'm trying to remember to just get this straight now. I think it was like eighty six, seven, and eight, something like that. But there was there was a three year period, and each guide would be granted a quota according to the average of the of the highest two of those three years. Uh-huh. Okay, so that meant that you had to pull out all the old rod day reports and and uh, you know. But were they accurate? Were the guys actually no? They were they were just terrible, <laughs> absolutely terrible. You know, and, and I look back on a couple of those guys and, uh, to be blunt, they weren't the high end of the gene pool. They weren't real good on even records and that sort of thing, you know, so you're, you're faced with this problem of trying to figure out, okay, what's real and, you know, how does this apply? And for example, you would get people that said, well, they guided three different rivers the same day. Oh, no. Well, <laughs> what are you supposed to do with that? How can you possibly come up with some sort of, with any sort of data from that? Yeah, well, you know, they would say, well, I guided the skein of the Calum and the Copper or something like that, you know, you know, because I don't know, they went one place and it was, the water was too high or off color or there's too many people. So they went to the other place and they didn't like that either. So they went to the third place. So, so what do you do? Yeah. Well, you know, at the end of the day, they ended up getting three rod days, one for each of those, right? Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And and the other side of it was that, uh, you know, some of the, the reports were just horribly incomplete as well. And that, uh, you know, you struggle with, well, did you really guide that much? Because, you know, if you sort of add this up, it it seems really unrealistic. And uh, but at the end of the day, the, the so-called statutory authority, who was my boss, the regional manager, that's the person that, you know, Legally described as the guy who signs the rod day quarters and all that kind of stuff, you know. He, he, not only did he, uh, did he go beyond the, the average of the two highest years, but he took the highest of the three years and, and conferred those rod day quotas on all those people. So how many rod days were allocated? The bulkly, I think it was 1517, something like that, or, you know, over 1500 in any case. And how many operators? Seven. That many rod days handed off between seven? Yeah. And they didn't have to pay for the rod days. They were given to them. That's right. Talk about a gold mine, eh? <laughs> I mean, let's, okay, just for my listener, let's fast forward to just to today. We'll go back. But today, how many rod days are there? Same number. And how many outfitters are there? Same number. <laughs> and how much are each of those rod days worth? Oh, I think, uh, you know, the the biggest rod day quota that sold here, it's a few years ago now, but it was worth a million bucks. These were free. Yeah, they got them for nothing. So this is just playing devil's advocate now. What if you guys said, or the government said, we're going to take them back? And then obviously these guys are going to go to court. Who's going to win in a court of law here? Oh, the guides will win hands down now because... Uh, 
you know, the, the provision was there and, and remains in the regulations that, you know, that rod days could be clawed back because they were never used. You know, it's called it a use it or lose it. Okay. That was the excuse that my boss gave back in the days for not ever worrying about the number of days that were conferred originally. Oh, well, if they don't use them, we'll just retrieve them through the use it or lose it mechanism. Mm-hmm. Well, it never happened. You know, even though, you know, and, and I've got the records, you know, that are right there in that book, you know, <laughs> that tell what those, uh, the level of use was in the first three years following the implementation of those regulations in 1990. Yeah. And they're a fraction of, of, uh, of the days that were allocated. But, you know, all those unused days that were supposedly, you know, we'll, we'll readjust downward according to how many were used never happened. And you can imagine what lawyers would do now, you know, what, you know, 28 years later, you're going to come along, you know, having ignored that regulation for all those years, and now you're going to implement that? Because now they're worth something? Never going to happen. Would the, is it a big enough problem that the government would think about buying them back? Uh, you know, it would never be on government's radar from a priority standpoint, and, and the price would be, you know, too much to bear anyways. Okay, but it's on your radar, so let's get back to this. Oh, well, I mean, I, you know. <laughs> Sure. There has to be a balance. What about the classified waters? How, who put that into place? Well, that was, you know, the genesis of that was the Dean River because, once again, you know, it was sort of the mid-'80s and, and, you know, maybe even going back to the early-'80s where the, the growth and effort there and the interest and everything was going up and up and up. And, uh, you know, you could see that, you know, if you projected that trend for much longer, you know, it was going to be a very undesirable experience in there, you know. So... It had to have some kind of a limit on it. So it started with the Dean and then it, it, it spilled over into the Skeena country right away. Being specific to the Dean, can you explain what the Classified Waters Act is or how it works? The three people that were instrumental in, in all of that really were, uh, you know, first it was Dr. Art Tots, you know, who was, uh, at that time we called him our anadromous fish coordinator. So he was a, you know, a, a specific Position within the the provincial fisheries hierarchy that mandated that whoever occupied that position to deal with all the steelhead related issues. Okay, so Art was the guy, and he was the consummate diplomat. Believe me, I mean he's just a special person. That's all you can say about him. You know, I don't think he's got an enemy on this planet. You know, so he he was in there on, on the ground floor with a person named Cindy Brown who was uh, the economist. She was kind of the the backup for for Art to, uh, you know, assemble some of the figures and, you know, the mechanics of trying to deal with regulations and all that kind of stuff. And Art actually wrote the legislation, you know. So even though, I mean, by training, he's a Ph.D. in fisheries, you know. Okay, well, what's he doing writing law? Right. Well, because he was just that capable at doing almost anything and, and he could see that it wasn't going to happen any other way. So this was all happening at the time that I went to Smithers and, uh, you know, all this massive growth in the guiding industry and the demand to do something, you know, government, you got to do something, you know. So, you know, next thing you know, Art and Cindy and I are working closely. Oh, you're the third person. Yeah, okay. I, I was yeah. kind of the third person in there, you know, and uh, between the three of us, but once again, full credit to Art for, uh, you know, for being, you know, carrying the lion's share of all that and you know the ultimate diplomat i'm telling you he's like i say he's a special person 
So then on the dean, and I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm leading you down this trail because I guided on the dean mm-hmm. for five years. I really liked how it was managed. So correct me if I'm wrong. You have to pay extra to have a classified waters license. If yeah. you're a resident of BC, then you pay, it's like $15 a year, but then you have access to all the classified systems. Uh, yeah. If you're a resident, that's right. Resident. Yeah. But what I think is interesting about the dean is that a non-resident cannot fish for any more than eight days. Right. Uh, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter if you leave and come back. No more than eight days. You have to put in for a draw. Like if you want to be a DIY or do it yourself, you have to put in for like a lottery system. Yep. It's not hard to get in. Um, in my opinion, I, I've had lots of friends who um, that don't really have that much difficulty getting in. It's not like trying to get the elk, <laughs> the elk well, drawn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, uh, you know, I. I don't think I'm wrong on this. You know, my understanding is that, uh, you know, they established a, an upper limit on the number of non-guided, non-resident anglers that can be fishing per week. Mm-hmm. And I think that ever since those regulations were implemented in 1990, the great majority of years, the number of applicants has not exceeded the supply of days available. Yeah. So, you know, there's... That sort of says that the numbers are probably about right, right, in the first place, you know, and it seems to have, you know, kind of worked itself out in that respect. It works. Is yeah. it because the dean isn't as accessible? Oh yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's a yeah, it's a major undertaking to make a trip in there, you know, if you're especially if you're not guided. Why though did you guys not take the exact same rules and apply them to fisheries like the Bulkley? Well, you know, <laughs> that's a good question. In in hindsight, you know, because. Uh, Probably they should have, but, you know, to try and do it now, you know, I think, you know, you're going to run up against all kinds of opposition, you know. But they did do it now with this quality waters, which we will also get into. Because when they started saying non-residents could not fish on weekends, that's just as much of a blow as saying you can't fish more than eight days. Well, no, I don't think so, really. And, uh, you know, in fact, you know, some of the guys I've talked to, they they figure, well, you know what, that's kind of okay because uh, now we sort of diversify what we do on our trip up there now. We don't have to go up and fish our brains out seven days a week sort of thing and get everything you possibly can before you hit the highway home. So you think that that was just the right amount of compromise? Well, no, I mean, I I look at all kinds of things. I mean, the, the whole element of that that drove me nuts was the fact that, uh, okay, so it's uh, no non-residents on weekends unless you're guided. Yeah. Oh, well, wait a second now, as if the, the guys didn't already have a big enough piece of the pie, you know, we just made it that much better. And, and the part that bothered me the most was, well, Saturday used to be the big changeover day for the guides, you know. So if you lived in downtown Smithers as a local resident, you know, Saturday was a pretty good day to go fishing because you didn't have to worry about all the guide traffic that seemed to be getting up to offensive levels. Well, now all of a sudden, you know, uh, the guides have got a free ride on the weekend and they they just make their changeover day like Monday or Tuesday or something like that, you know, so that they get the full benefit of less competition on the weekends and, uh, you know, no price to pay for it. You know, that come on now, you know, the people that put that in place didn't have their eyes open as far as I'm concerned, you know, this is totally predictable and, uh, you know, somehow it just got right past them. Mm, I've got listeners right now who are sitting on the edge of their seat, but I'm still going to pull you back into back when you were with Art and Cindy, when all of these classified waters regulations were put into place, where was the 
having the catch and release steelhead was was that part of this program or was that then before or after no and and you know it's 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 kind of interesting to be you know once again looking back so if you think about the mid 80s the 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 period that gave rise to uh you know the rapid increase in angling traffic and especially from a guided perspective all the demand for on the part of the public you know you got to do something and all that kind of stuff so it was kind of the demand management time Mm. Okay, it wasn't it wasn't a fish supply thing. It was more of an anger management issue. Okay. Okay, so you you invest all this time and energy, and uh, you implement these new regulations in 1990. Well, guess what? 91, two, and three were three of the worst ever years in terms of steelhead supply in Eskina. So everything shifted from demand management to supply management. And that's when the whole catch and release thing started to come home in a big way. Was that still three of you or was that you? No, no, that was, uh, you know, I mean, Art was integral to that because uh, he was such a tower of strength from, uh, you know, sort of the fisheries diplomacy perspective and, and you know, the, the depth of knowledge that he commanded over, you know, fisheries in general. Uh, Cindy was kind of out of the equation by that time. She'd gone on doing other things, but... Uh, Art was the go-to guy for the province, you know, in terms of the federal-provincial interaction and the commercial fishery DFO interaction on steelhead front and all that kind of thing. So he was he was definitely central to a lot of what happened there, and and I worked fairly closely with Art, you know, all through those years, trying to sort of figure out how we're going to deal with the supply side of thing, you know, what are the regulations going to look like, you know. So there is a period of years there where. We had uh, what we call the in-season adjustments to the regulation that were sort of tied to the to the returns of skiing efficient in that particular year. You couldn't predict in advance, you know, and sort of adjust the regulations and put them in print so that everybody knew, you know, on April first what the regulations would be in October. We had to pretty much wait until the the test fishery results were in from the skiing, you know, to sort of be able to say, oh boy, we got a conservation crisis here. We got to do something, and then you have to do what they they call these directors' orders, these in season adjustments to the regulations. Well, we did that for about three or four years, and then it became pretty obvious. Well, this is a pain in the ass, you know, and and it is from an administrative standpoint, it's a big pain in the ass to do those in season changes. So we just opted for putting them in the regulations right from the get-go. What was the public's reaction? I would say that, you know, it was probably about 95% supportive, but that other 5% makes a lot of noise and causes a lot of grief. Bob, I heard a rumor that you, that your children are harassed at school, that you got absolutely bombarded with hatred, that they made your life hell in Smithers. No, you know, I'm... I never heard a shred of evidence from anywhere about my kids being, you know, victims of any of this kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, there was, uh, there was one particular individual in Smithers that, that was a champion muckraker. That's for sure. And, and, uh, you know, he certainly didn't make life very comfortable in that community for sure. But that's not why you left Smithers. No, no, no. Okay. I, I always wondered about that rumor, and I've always wanted to ask you, but I've never had the balls to ask you. So now I know the answer. I well, you see, know, just, I couldn't see someone bullying you out, but I thought I would ask anyway. No, I mean, you know, the job had become difficult, make no mistake, but the big reason for us leaving at the time was that uh, both my girls had graduated from high school. 
there was not a whole lot of opportunity on the horizon for them at that stage in their life. Our son was a very good hockey player, and his future was not in Smithers. So, you know, in fact, we moved, uh, you know, when he was uh, just finishing his Bantam level, and uh, he went on to play junior hockey mm-hmm. on Vancouver Island, and then, you know, eventually uh, scholarship to uh, to Minnesota to play college hockey and, you know, drafted by the Ottawa Senators and sort of went through the minor pros system in North America and on to Europe. But that never would have happened if we'd stayed in Smithers. Yeah. And, and I would have regretted that. So where do you guys go from there? Back to Nanaimo. Okay. Yep. And the public's getting used to this catch and release of wild steelhead and things are starting to look balanced. What's it looking like at that point? Yeah, there's, you know, you, you can track back through the implementation of catch and release regulations anywhere in BC. And the first thing that happens is there's a big fall off in the amount of fishing that goes on. And then there's a, an equally dramatic, if you will, return to days of yore, you know, so whether it's people get used to the idea or they're the dinosaurs are replaced by forward thinking newcomers. I don't know for sure. Maybe, uh, you know, some blend of that. But uh, Art and I and others have talked about this over the years. You know, you say, well, you know, imagine if you tried to go back to a kill fishery for wild steelhead. The opposition would be immense. Immense. So, you know, in in that context, it was definitely the right decision. You know, and I mean, to this day, I mean, I would stand 100% behind uh, every one of those catch and release regulations that I was ever involved with right from day one. What if the fishery could handle it? I mean, isn't the whole point? Don't we all say to each other, we'd all love there to be enough fish so that we could keep them, but there aren't. What if there actually were enough fish? Would that ever be lifted? I don't foresee that happening, but would it be lifted? Or is it just that it's set in stone and everyone just leaves it like that? I just can't imagine that we're ever going to see wild steelhead abundant enough anywhere in British Columbia that we're going to go out there and start hitting them over the head. Okay, so let's move forward from there. You go back to Nanaimo and you're still working and your kids are off. Yep. what's on your agenda at that point? Well, you know, I, I went back there and, uh, you know, sort of never far from the whole steelhead agenda and, and uh, you know, trying to stick handle some forward thinking in, into the fisheries agenda, not just there, but throughout the province, as a matter of fact, at the time. And then, you know, so I did that for a couple of years. And then uh, there was uh, the first of the uh, retirement incentive programs came along and a bunch of people vacated, you know, from people that, you know, of of my era kind of thing, you know, a whole bunch of them just sort of said, that's it, I'm out of here, you know. So all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of new positions available. And, you know, I got installed as the fish and wildlife section head in Nanaimo. So all of a sudden, you know, I'm doing the wildlife portfolio as well as fisheries. Like bears, eagles, game? Yeah, elk and wolves and all those kinds of things, yeah. How can anybody possibly handle that much responsibility? There's so much to manage. You have really good staff. You know, the support staff in the wildlife end of business in Nanaimo were fantastic. All right. And then this is approximately what year that this is all happening? Oh, let me think now. Uh, so that would have been about 2004 or something like that. Okay. From there, when do you retire? Does anything really exciting happen between then and when you retire? Life and government at that stage, no. There was nothing exciting happening. <laughs> 
<laughs> Trust me. Okay. <laughs> if you, you can interview anybody of, uh, of my era sort of thing and ask them that question, and I, I'll guarantee you're going to get the same answer. You know, yeah. it was sort of, oh, dear, you know, uh, too many people sort of coming to work and, and looking at the calendar and thinking, well, how many more days, how many more years, or there's... One guy used to laugh, you know, he, he counted it out in paychecks, right? You know, and. Oh. <laughs> was it just, I mean, was it doomsday or was it just boring? No, it was never boring. I mean, there was just a ton of, of really good stuff that needed to be done out there and, and motivated people that, that wanted to get on with that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, the whole malaise that, uh, that had been created by government, you know, the, the sort of the demoralization of the, of the organization, you know, budget restraints and no more talking one-on-one to the public, that kind of stuff, you know, everything, you know, if you're ever going to do an interview, for example, you know, with a media person, you had to get the, uh, the approval of the blessing, you know, of the information specialists of the day. So everything got kind of wrote it to Victoria back again, you know, I'm going through it right now with Mark Beer. Oh yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. And he's lovely. He seems lovely. I've never met him, but it's, he wants me to submit my questions. And actually he's been great. He said, look, I'm going to answer it. He's, he sounds like he's going to answer it authentically, but I, I need to know that I, that I'm not being, I need to know that the government doesn't have their fingers in this. That's the only thing, you know? Well, trust me, they do. All right. So let's get back to you. You retired. What year? 2008. And you decide eventually that you're going to write a book. What year did you decide? Did you always know you were going to write Skeena Steelhead? Uh, yeah, I would say that, uh, you know, probably three or four years before I retired, I kind of had in the back of my mind that uh, there was a story there that needed to be told. And um, They didn't have you on a non-disclosure? No non-disclosure. So. No, I, you know, I, as you might imagine, you know, I'd accumulated a huge amount of material over, over my time in, in the sort of the Skeena trenches, you know, and, uh, there was, you know, as I say, there was a story there that I think needed to be told. And, uh, you know, I just sort of committed to, you know, from a personal perspective on doing that, you know, so. It was a story, all right. And, and I read it and I was swearing in the airplane reading your book. Now, if I were to look at a pie chart and I was going to look at percentages of blame, if you will, or a focal point in your book, I would say, you know, you've got First Nations, you've got government uh, internal issues, you've got commercial fisheries, you've got other extraction resources, you've got guides. I mean, if you were to look at a pie chart, as far as where the blame was going, what percent would all of those subjects be responsible for? Well, you know, I don't know. I, I wouldn't use the term blame. I'd say responsibility, you know, and the the responsibility, I think uh, the big burden of responsibility is on the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. I mean, there's just no denying that. Did you ever really feel like, I mean, obviously you felt like you had your hands tied? Oh, yeah. Why not just quit? Um, No, I thought, you know, I, I wasn't about to, you know, sort of wave a a white flag and just walk away, you know. I mean, ultimately, I suppose you could argue that that's what happened. You know, I left Smithers and, you know, sort of, you know, <laughs> it never got any better after that, that's for sure. But, I mean, once again, there was a story to be told. And, and uh, the only way to put some of that stuff out there in the public forum, I think, was, you know, with a, a book that was not constrained by a job, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, uh 
I could never, and I said that in the book, you know, that I could uh, never written that book, you know, while in service. It never would have passed, you know, no chance at all. I would have been on the carpet in five minutes, I'm sure. Did anyone try to sue you? Oh, no, no. What was the backlash? No, none. None? No. You know, you know what? I bet you that, uh, almost every employee in the Smithers office that has anything to do with fisheries has never read that book. What? Yeah. But oh. you name people in that book. Yeah, not really. To not some, very often. To some degree, there are some, uh, but there are positions, well, I guess, yeah, I guess you mentioned positions at certain times. If somebody wrote a book and I knew that my position, even though I was nameless, was somewhere in that book, I would probably be curious enough to read it. That's kind of what I thought. But I can find no evidence to this moment of anybody up there ever sort of paying attention to what was between those covers. Do you want them to read it? You know, I'm shocked that they don't want to know more of the history. You know, and, and, and I'm not talking about history of, you know, people. I'm talking about the history of the circumstances. What do we know about that resource and its abundance and how it's been treated by various sectors over the many years? You know, again, I, I'm I'm absolutely convinced that almost no one in that office has read that book. Now we are sitting here today, and I'm staring at yet another book. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to really dive into that, but first I have to ask you one other thing. It was a carrot that you dangled earlier when we were talking about quality waters. A lot of people are very confused by that. The only person I've had speak on the subject so far has been Gene Allen, who has an opinion on it. I'd really like to hear from your stance. If you had to explain to my mom what the quality waters is, what would you tell her? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, and, and, uh, you know, I, I think I've said in, a number of times that, uh, you know, quality is in the eyes of the beholder and, uh, you know, you could ask 10 people and get 12 answers kind of thing. But, um, I don't feel like the Bulkley is very quality right now. I'll tell you bingo, that. <laughs> bingo. Bingo. Sooner or later. When you live on it and those boats all damn day long and there's guys in front of your yard and they are pulling a grate behind their boat and they're digging up the eggs from the pink salmon reds and then they're fishing their whatever in the hell it is that they're fishing over and over again. I live on the Bulkley. There's no quality there. Sorry. Bingo. No Thank you for saying that because that's exactly it. You know, sooner or later, quality is all about limitations on the number of participants and what they're doing out there. And, you know, the, the bulk is the classic example. How many boats is too many boats? You know, everybody, you, you go in one on one and interview people along the stream side there and you, you say, well, you're having an enjoyable experience and there, you know, almost everyone's going, Jesus, Jesus, this is awful. You know, there's too many boats. There's too many people and all this kind of stuff, you know, so. You know, the, the, uh, the collective level of unhappiness is pretty high. But, you know, whose ox is going to be gored? Who's going to sacrifice? Who's going to be the first one to say that, okay, I'll give up my boat or I'll, uh, you know, I'll apply for a permit to run it for, from there to there, you know, for this week or something like that. But it just seems so outdated. You can't fish from a boat. You can't fish from a boat on the Thompson. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of rivers you can't fish from a boat on. Why? Are you allowed to fish out of a boat? I mean, if they had to get rid of one thing, why not get rid of that? It just seems so outdated. Well, but there's, you know, how many people actually fish out of a boat? You know, most of them don't, you know, so. There's a lot now. Is there? And I see a lot of illegal guys coming in from the States. 
and they're doing what they do in the OP, and they're guiding guys with indicators and beads fishing out of a boat. The gear guys are coming in fishing out of a boat. Okay, well, I'm out of step on that because, uh, you know, I just, I haven't seen that. I, I, I'll admit to being surprised that there hasn't been more of that. You know, the, the, I mean, the drift boat traffic on a lot of the Olympic Peninsula rivers, for example, you know, is just pretty offensive from all I hear and see. It's here. We have it. Okay, well, you know, for sure there's a regulation on the books right now. No fishing out of a boat could be done in a heartbeat. Yeah. And probably should have been a long time ago if the trend is there. Um, the business of how many boats... Now that's a whole different game, you know, but I, again, it, 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 quality fishing comes down to sooner or later a limit on how many of us and, you know, the kinds of things that we're doing out there and, and boat traffic is one of them. There's too many boats there on a lot are of our rivers. Too many boats. Now listen, I own a jet boat. So I just sold mine, but for right? the first time in 45 <laughs> years, I haven't owned one. How's that? You know? Yeah. Well, I'm going to be totally clear. I own a jet boat. I also own a property that comes with a grandfathered boat launch. I am allowed to launch my boat. I do not, that boat has been in that river maybe four times. There's too much boat traffic. I'm saying that with a boat living on the river, there's too much traffic. Now, I hear you. Who made the Quality Waters Act and why? Well, it was, you know, I mean, 1990 and uh, it was all about limiting the number of angling guides and rod days. With the longer term view that, well, you know, we're going to have to talk about limits on total numbers at some stage, you know, and, and it was in the background discussion documents on, on quality waters and all that sort of thing. You know, there was talk about that, that sooner or later, there would be a point where you had to have limits on even residents, you know, I mean, they're, they're just will come a time. But who's the talk of? I mean, was this guide influenced? Was this general public? Was it tourists? Was it government? Who who was bringing the who is bringing this to light? It was sort of the background discussion that was uh, largely formulated I think by by Art Tots and Cindy Brown and and to a lesser extent myself, but you know, clearly there's a fixed amount of space out there. You know, there's a fixed season like in terms of okay, well, you know, what do you want? 60 days? 75, 90, what's it going to be? But, you know, there's a start and a finish, right? Okay. And there's only so much space. So, you know, the only thing that can change in all of that is the number of people that are in there. But you're talking from a classified water stance or from a quality waters? Well, they're the same. You know, I mean, classified waters is quality waters. But when, I mean, just what year was it when they put the Quality Waters Act? That would have been not, I mean, what are we, 2018? It would have been 2000. 13, 12, when did that go into play? No, the regulations were, were 1990, okay? And then there were, they were, that was the, the classified waters regulations. And, you know, okay, you can, it's semantics, you know, that people talk about, oh, quality waters. Well, no, the quality waters are the classified waters. Okay. All There's right. no it is semantics, yeah, know, yeah. But the non-fishing, no fishing on, on weekends. That was a minor adjustment to the original quality, or the original classified waters regulations. Oh. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. It was nothing new. It was just, you know, sort of a bit of a tweak to what was already there. And okay. again, and, and again, it's semantics. I mean, it's not like, oh, okay, well. I thought it was a whole different policy nope. put into play. Nope, 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 nope. Okay. And the big change fine was... Fine-tuning. So it is possible to fine-tune existing policies and have the public adjust to it. Oh, sure. But, you know, there there has to be somebody that is willing to drive that process through the government you know, maze and all that kind of stuff, and there isn't. So who pushed the non-residents can't fish on weekends without a guide? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I suspect it was the guide community. You know, 
I mean, I wasn't there. I was, I was sitting there in an IMO and sort of, you know, trying to maintain a bit of a watching brief over this and offering some comments from a personal perspective, mm-hmm. not necessarily as a government employee or anything, but as a, a lifelong fisherman on some of those waters and saying, well, you know, you might want to think about ABC here, you know, and if you do D, this is what's going to happen, you know. Well, you know, I wasn't wrong on any of that stuff. And what was the ABCD that happened? Well, you know, the... I, I predicted at the time, or I said at the time, that look, you know, if you if you give the guides, uh, you know, the carte blanche on weekends for non-residents sort of thing, you know, that's not going to go down real well with some people, and here's why, you know, well, you know, nobody paid any attention, and, you know, the guides won out on that, and we've got what we got now. But, um, you know, I mean... Did anything good come from it? I don't think so. I mean, I, you know, I, I was saying at the time, and for years before that, I said, look, you've got to address boats. You have to do something about the level of boat traffic on these rivers. You know, it is, is gone to the point where now it is anything but a quality experience out there. Deaf ears. There's nobody paying attention to that. Who would be the person to pay attention to it? Well, you know, ultimately the authority rests with the statutory authority in Smithers, you know, so. Which is, who is that, Marks? No, no, you're talking about, I don't know, three levels above him now. You know. Again, thank you to Cell Helmet for making this episode possible. Gone are the days of setting your cell phone on airplane mode or turning off your GPS or satellite phone between uses in an attempt to conserve battery power. Headlamp accidentally flicked on in your backpack and now it's drained? No problem. If it's charged with a micro USB, you're ready to plug it in and get charged up. Cell Helmet's lightweight power banks easily slip into your pocket or backpack to give you that little bit of extra security, knowing you can still use your phone's apps, maps, flashlight and camera, and have the power to make a call at the end of the day. With a lifetime warranty, free shipping, and 40% off, it's pretty hard not to go to cellhelmet.com and enter code ANCHORED at checkout. You decided to write another book. Yeah, and and once again, it was... um... You know, I, I mean, my professional career and then, you know, following that, uh, it struck me that, uh, altering the status quo is mission impossible. You know, I mean, it, you try, you try, you try, and, and, you know, I've never stopped trying, but at the same time, I think it's important to leave a trail. There's times and places that I, uh, you know, that I saw and, and, uh, work with. That I just think, you know, if there isn't some kind of a record, it'll be lost. And, and it's worth creating a bit of a record, you know, and just put it out there, you know, and, and, and it's, it's not for profit. It's, uh, you know, it's not for, you know, fame or anything like that. It's just a case of, look, you know, there's some stuff that's worth saying. I think I'm going to do that. Is any part of this book in relation to the lack of response that you got from Skeena Steelhead? No, not necessarily. Uh, you know, I mean that. I, I suppose that you know when I when I first started the skiing and steelhead thing, it sort of had this uh, notion that well, you know, it'll be at least be a cost recovery kind of thing. You know, you know, I'll make a few bucks on it. I mean, you know, as as one guy said to me, he said, "Well, you know, you you probably get a nice holiday trip for you and your wife out of it or something like that." Well. Not really. <laughs> it, it turned out to be a bit of a nightmare and, you know, the whole, it, it, the timing was bad probably in the sense that, uh, you know, the uh, digital media was sort of taking over the world, you know, so, uh, you know, hard copy books were, you know, fading from the scene and publishers were having a hard time, you know, trying to make a go of it and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, in that sense, the timing was bad. 
So um, that was part of it, I suppose. But, you know, trying to get a royalty payment out of the publisher, I mean, forget it. You mm-hmm. know, it was, and finally I just gave up. I threw my hands in the air and said, look, send me four cases of the book and we're done. Yeah. You know, and uh, so all relations severed at that point. But um, there's no way you wrote that book for money. There's no way. Oh, no, no, no. It was. Uh, but but again, you know, I didn't I didn't think I would get burned on it, but basically no. I did. But then, then the next one, sort of eyes wide open, you know, and uh, knowing everything about, you know, sort of the status of digital versus hard copy type things and uh, the difficulty of even get a publisher to, to sign on to something, you know. But the manuscript sort of stood on its own and, you know, I got a publisher to, you know, say they, they would do it and all that kind of stuff. So away you go. And, and once again, it was, you know, no thought whatsoever to ever making a buck out of it. It was just a case of, you know, there's some things here that I think need to be said, put on record. That's my mission. You know, whatever happens after that, so be it. So what are you saying in this book? And just for the listener, what is the book called? Oh, it's called Days of Rivers Past. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, and, and that's exactly what it is. It's about, you know, my own personal experiences, mostly as an angler, going back to, uh, you know, my favorite times and places, starting on the lower mainland here with the Squamish River and then moving over to Vancouver Island, which seemed like Mecca to me at the time. And it was really, even though it's, you know, the generation before me was saying, Hey kid, you know, you should have been here yesterday kind of thing, which is all true. But, you know, to the extent that I was able to capture my own experiences and, and sort of relate that to the near past years, it was important for me to do that. So, uh, you know, I picked on, you know, once again, my favorite streams on Vancouver Island. And then, uh, you know, the back half of the book is sort of some of my favorite times and places from the north. I feel like this book's a very, very personal book. Yeah, it's not, you know, I mean, I'll be the first to admit that the Skeena Steelhead thing was, uh, it's a bit of a tough read. You know, it, there's some... It's tedious, you know, it's not the kind of thing you're going to sit down with, you know, an hour before bedtime and, you know, get through half a book or something like that. You know, you're probably going to have to reread several of those pages several times to sort of figure out what in the world I was saying there, you know, and how it might relate to the chapter before or whatever. But uh, but this one is is much more sort of anecdotal and, uh, you know, a much easier read and, and uh you know, I think there's some entertainment value in there as well as, you know, a little bit of education as well. Yeah, I find that there are, when I was going through it anyway, it was, there were fishing stories, positive and negative. You know, I actually, I got to be honest with you, I was expecting a real doomsday on this one. And uh, it wasn't, there were a lot of really, really entertaining, interesting stories. In one of the chapters, obviously, you talk about early days. Uh, where is paradise found? You know, well, for me, it was, uh, it was Nanaimo River, I suppose, at the, at the time, um, you know, having come from the steelhead apprenticeship years on, on uh, the lower mainland and having, you know, experienced only the lower mainland, basically, you know, all of a sudden you're in this new real estate over there and, uh, you know, the traffic levels are a fraction of what they were and, you know, the fishing results were just mind boggling, you know, compared to lower mainland, you know, that said, I mean, a day without a steelhead landed was virtually unimaginable, mm. you know, as opposed to lower mainland at the time. Well, you know, you know, even the good guys would go, you know, eight or 10 days between fish sometimes. Yeah. A different world. That's a paradise found. Yeah, pretty much. You had mentioned to me when you were at my place, you're going to be writing a book that kind of called out certain guiding operations, but you, it's virtually nameless. No one's mentioned. Yeah, no, I, you know, I, 
no intent to, to call out individuals <clears throat> or anything like that. You know, I try to sort of relate to the to circumstances more so than anything. And but you call yeah. out the river names. So what was your mm-hmm. thought process behind that? Because to be totally honest, I read some rivers in your book and I thought, ooh, I didn't know there were fish there. Ooh, I didn't know there were fish there. Maybe I should go fishing there. What if it does bring pressure to those rivers? Or are they, did you mention them because they're so far gone that it's too late anyway? It's all relative, you know, and it's whatever your benchmark is sort of thing. You know, I have mine, which I've tried to describe in in the book there, you know, and uh, I won't go back to those places because it ain't the same anymore, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I'm not willing to sort of, you know, tarnish my past memories and experiences of those places by going and, you know, toughen out the circumstances of the day. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, again, the whole intent was to, to sort of create a, a historic snapshot, if you will, of, of those times and places, you know, and, and people can do with that as they please, you know. So you're not doing it to poke the bear and poke at people. No, no, I'm just saying, look, uh, you know, here's the facts of the time and, uh, you know, they're all yours to chew on if you like, or. So you're writing a, a timeline basically is what it is. Yeah, basically it's, it's, uh, my time in those places. Okay. Now I noticed that something that really gets up your nose is when people refer to a fishery and say that it hasn't been fished before. Like when I fished with Katie and we did that, that bull trout, um, mm-hmm. exploration, she wanted to go explore a river and, I didn't write any of this, but the biologist had told her it hadn't been fly fished before and she was really excited. And when she did her interview, she was saying, you know, it's, there's a chance this has never been touched with a fly. Why does it bother you so much when people refer to fisheries that are a little more secret and make them sound like they're kind of untouched? Well, you know, there is no grass beyond the mountains. I mean, I, I go back to some of the people that I've known over the years that, uh, believe me, they scoured British Columbia for all the best times and places, you know, helicopter supported and all that sort of thing, you know, and one, maybe the most traveled and knowledgeable sport fisherman that I can remember was Daryl Hodson from the Dean River, you know, who eventually died in a tragic helicopter accident. But there's a man who was everywhere. Mm. You know, if there was a fish stream out there, he knew about it sort of thing, you know, and, uh, he was where he was, you know, on the Kitlope and the, and the Dean for good reason. Mm-hmm. And it's not as if he, uh, you know, missed anything in between or beyond sort of deal, you know. So, you know, when I, when I think back to those people and, and how they pioneered a lot of these areas, you know, a long, long time ago, you know, and somebody comes along in today's world and thinks, well, you know, I've discovered this place that's never been touched before. No, not really. But how, because it really bothers you. So is it an ego thing? Because your peers want us to know that they were there first? Because I've always thought, isn't it best if we do think that there are fish in these rivers or we do go exploring these rivers because it gets the pressure of all the anglers. Um, it's diluting the pressure. I mean, is that naive yep. of me to think yep. that? Can you explain why does that? Well, it's just, you know, I mean, we live in a different era from a communication perspective, you know, and uh, I mean, the internet, you know, I said it years ago, you know, it's uh, the best thing that ever happened to fishing. It's the worst thing that ever happened to fish, you know, and and our collective ability to get to everywhere at the best time and, and use the best techniques possible to rip every last fish out of the water sort of thing, you know, take hero shots or, you know, create video clips or whatever, you know. You know, our collective ability to do that is is absolutely unprecedented. What if someone argued with you that a YouTube clip, is the same thing, you know, maybe it's leaving a timeline and it's the same thing as writing a book. What's the difference between a book and a YouTube clip? Well, 
A book means you got to sit down and invest some time. <laughs> YouTube is when it's like the twenty second soundbite sort of thing, you know. Yeah. I want it all, and I want it now, you know. And uh, well, okay. So I'm, what, I'm the older generation. I guess I'm not into that game so much. So, what do you want to see my generation do? Like, what do your peers want to see my peers do? Soften the footprint. Bring that sort of demand back into balance with the supply that's safely available. Okay. And how do, do, would you like to see us put a limit on how many fish we catch in a day? Is it that? Yeah, you could, you could do that. I mean, you know, that, that's a sort of a philosophy and an education process as opposed to, you know, regulation. Everybody wants, well, we've got to have a regulation. Well, how would you enforce a regulation like that? Just, you know, no, you, you, you have to educate the angling public of today to, you know, what's reasonably doable and possible and sustainable, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, so, Ultimately, it really boils down to, you know, on, on, if we ever want to maintain what we call this quality fishing experience on a lot of times and places, you got to limit the numbers of people. <laughs> you know, go back to one of Art's favorite, uh, little clips, you know, you always want to say, well, you know, everybody wants to go to heaven, nobody wants to die. Right. Well, you know, that's pretty much captures the essence of it, you know, that, uh, you know, we, we have to sort of come to grips with, you know, how we're going to distribute ourselves in time and place, you know, that, uh, somehow maintains that so-called quality experience, whatever it might mean to you or the next person sort of thing. But let's establish that there is something like that out there. And, and, and if you're going to achieve that objective, you know, there's a limit on how many of us can be there. So if there were more people fishing back in the sixties and seventies, especially the 80s, is this just a matter of you getting older and, and it's a perspective thing for you? Or do you think this is directed, like, is your angst about the amount of pressure that's out there now just because there's not as much supply? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, and this is the mischief around numbers, you know. I mean, somebody's going to pull up the, the steelhead license sales, for example, and, and say that, well, you know, they're relatively unchanged today from what they were sort of thing. And but I would argue, okay, well, if if you really want to look at the distribution of angling effort, take Vancouver Island as a classic example, you know. And, you know, I can pull up all the numbers that demonstrate that there was, you know, 15 streams on the island that uh, that supported, you know, a couple of thousand or more angler days per year. Well, you know how many there are now that support that level? Mm-mm. Not more than three. You know, so... What's happened is that, yeah, you may have the same number of licensees out there. Actually, you don't. It's less. But even if you did, you know, those people that are still fishing out there are so concentrated in time and space now because of all the social media type stuff that's instantly available to them. You know, they all go to the Cowichan River or they all go to the Stamp Somas River or they all go to the Gold River. Well, actually, nobody goes to Gold River anymore because there's nothing left there. But, you know, that that's the end result. You know, all those other smaller streams that used to sort of take part of the of the angling traffic out there and kind of even the distribution in time and space on, they're not there anymore. There's nobody fishing those rivers anymore. Those, the guys that are fishing today are all fishing the same times and places. Okay, so let me ask you this. If the Cowichan, for example, has 80% of the fish and 100% of the population, versus say, and, and then say that the smaller rivers all had 2% of the fish. Wouldn't you rather see, say, 40% of that 100% population of people go and and dis- and put themselves on the smaller rivers with fewer fish? Like, why would it be naive 
to want other people to go look at the, you know, beyond the green grass or whatever it is that you say. Why, why not encourage them to go find the smaller rivers to get them off of the cowichan if, you know, if that's, if, if that massive population is a problem? The only way you're going to ever encourage those people to do that is to have a supply of fish and there isn't one. That's why they're all concentrated on those few times or the few places where there are still some fish. So, so much of this then is the social media and the communication aspect. What about gear? I know when I had you on my, on my television show sometime back, you had mentioned that we're so efficient with gear that it gives the illusion that there are more fish than there actually are, which actually I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that. If you don't mind, if, if everyone started fishing bamboo rods and woven leaders and Scottish flies or dry flies, how would you feel about that? Well, you know, it, I mean, you'd be turning the clock back 30 years probably, that kind of thing, you know, at least. Do you think that it would be better for the fishery? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's just no doubt about it. You catch a lot lower proportion of the available supply of fish under those circumstances. So let's break down what's so efficient. Um, it doesn't really matter that your rod's carbon fiber. I guess you can cast a little, well, not even. I can cast as far with my bamboo as I can with my carbon well, fiber. Well, you know, okay, so the, I, I think the classic example of, you know, Trey Combs, you know, a household world, word among steelhead fly fishing fraternity. That sort of, you look at this book, I think it was 1991, I think, steelhead fly fishing. Mm-hmm. Pull up a copy of that book and look at it. You know, and, and, and compare the state of the art equipment that's described in that book versus what we have today. Yeah. No comparison whatsoever. But Trey Combs is writing a book on intruders right now. Yeah. Well, there you go. So, you see? so, uh, so working back, I mean, you've got rods. So what's the, where, if we had to really pinpoint something, do you think it would be sink tips? Do you think it would be the lines that are able to turn over sink tips? Do you think that we're just fishier because of YouTube tutorials? Is it flies? Like, what if you had to pinpoint something that makes us so damned efficient? What would it be? No, I don't think you can pinpoint any one thing. I mean, it's just sort of the you know the the collective technology that that goes into this and the competitiveness that drives that technology. You know, so you mean like industry manufacturing? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Everybody's got to be a leg up on the on the next guy. So all the big rod makers are coming up with different models every year that are supposed to be you know just that much. You know, it's a five percent increment over its predecessor or something like. I must have it. I must have it, you know. But it's and look at the line technology. I mean, you know, my friend Jim Vincent, you know, great guy. Really like him a lot, you know, and ahead of his time in so many ways. But, you know, if you look at the, the real lines that he first came up with, look at those compared to today's real lines. I mean, they bear no resemblance, you know. The, you know, the, the tool that the modern day real line suite, you know, has created compared to the original, no comparison. But it still comes down to operator. I mean, you fish a carbon fiber. Do you fish a Skagit line? Yeah. Yeah. And what kind of flies are you fishing? Uh, I don't use, you know, four inch intruders, you know, with, you know, barbell eyes or anything like that. You know, probably 90% of my fly fishing is with one tiny little fly, you know. But you can see how anyone could scream, you know, hypocrisy. So what's your response to that? Because I would imagine you're not catching 15 fish a day, or are you? <laughs> like if it's, if it's, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, but if it's operator, if it's operator, if it's controlled by the operator, it doesn't matter if we're using dynamite, if we're limiting our, our the amount of efficiency that we have. The whole technological race is kind of all about, you know, being first in line, you know, and, and getting the most, the biggest, all that kind of stuff, you know, and that's the thing that we, that I think that we have to kill deader than dead. 
you know, we have to start talking more about the experience that's available out there. But as someone could argue, well, Bob, it's been like that since the 60s. It's been like that since your, you know, glory days, if you will. It really hasn't changed now. Maybe it's just you who's changed and your experience and wisdom and maturity, which is so common in people your age, thank God, because we need you guys to look up to, maybe it's just your perspective. Maybe it's always been like this. Well, you know, you're right. Not, and and uh, none holier than the converted, I suppose. But uh, I guess, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, one of the lines or one of the quotes I put in there as well was, uh, you know, the it may be the burden of an old person that the further you can look back, the further you can see ahead. Mm. And, uh, I mean, you sort of sit down and think about that for a minute and that's, you know, hmm. There's a lot of wisdom wrapped up in that one little line sort of thing. You know? It's so true. I would well, not do is. a million of the things I'd done back then. It is. And, and, uh, you know, it, it, it just, I, I think we have to, we have to sort of get the competitiveness out of fishing. You know, it, it has to be the quiet, quiet and contemplative sport that, you know, Hague Brown talked about, you know, sort of the, the total experience of being out there. It's not about, you know, how many you can get in a day or, you know, winning the derby or something like that, you know, and, and it's that sort of mentality that we have to somehow shift. And I, and again, you know, none holier than conversion. I mean, I was as aggressive a bait fisherman as ever there was probably at, you know, at one time, but somewhere along the line there, I started to realize that, Ooh, this is not good. This is not good for the fish. It, uh, I don't need this, you know, I could amend my ways a little bit, you know, and as time has gone on, I mean, I could care less if I go out there and don't catch a fish on any given day. Do you think that videos and social media have helped that though? Because you look at back in the day, they used to have to kill a bunch of fish and put them on the yard and then it, you know, on the grass and it took forever to take a photo. Whereas on the, in the video or in social media, there's a lot of people who are real strong advocates of sharing the experience, the camaraderie and the campfire nights and all the stuff that goes are, are along with it. So on, on one hand, yes, the social media and the videos are, you know, bad for the sport, but in a lot of ways, aren't they promoting the opposite of the sixties or promoting the experience and not needing to catch a million fish to make it worthwhile? Well, yeah, not enough. <laughs> I think there's a lot more we can do in that respect. That's all. And, and, uh, again, it's, uh, you know, it, it's a highly competitive pursuit when you, when you step back and look at it, you know, and, and go back to the, to the equipment manufacturers. I mean, they're, everybody's trying to get a leg up on the next guy, right? I mean, that is serious competition. Make no mistake. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and, and all the marketing strategy is about, you know, buy our product because you're going to be the best of the best if you've got this stuff, you know. Well, you know, it's that mentality, you know, and, and how do you sort of shift that, you know, and, and, Go back to what I said about, you know, soften the footprint because collectively that's what we have to do if we're going to stretch this out. One of the things that you say that's really interesting in your book, the whole time I'm reading it, I'm thinking he's got it at some point bring up that people are going to cry hypocrisy. And sure enough, in the very bottom of the book, you do. And you say, make no mistake, I would give this up yeah. to have this fishery back. Now you're, you sold your boat. I can see you humming and hawing about whether or not you're going to make trips up north. It looks like you're taking a step back. Is this because you're getting tired or is it because it's just too heartbreaking or is it because you think that by removing yourself, it's one less person on the river? No, it's, uh, you know, f- for me personally, it, it's 
lowering the bar is what it amounts to. You know, if if I'm going to go back to this high, the times and places that I once enjoyed, you know, I I don't want it the the memories of bygone days sort of tarnished by the present. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and the you know I'd rather sacrifice the trip itself than the experience of going there and you know having to endure. The present. It really is your own shifting baseline, even in your sure own is. head, isn't it? Sure it is. Listening to you talk to my mom earlier out in the kitchen, you guys are talking about Chilliwack and, oh, there's a new roundabout at Vetter Crossing and my mom's telling you about all the buildings. And she doesn't realize that while she's telling you this, my heart, it feels heavy because I'm remembering back then what it used to look like. I won't fish the Chilliwack now because it ruins all those memories. Is that kind of where you're at? Where it's just, it's too disheartening to see what it is now? Yeah, I just, uh, I mean, uh, you know, I'll do the drive-by, if if you will, but, you know, I, I'm not going to go and actually fish. In fact, you know, here's an example. Like uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, I went out to my uh, one of my favorite places at Gold River and to take photographs, to mm. document the habitat changes one more time. I didn't even take a fishing rod, even though the water levels were actually fairly good and, and, and it's prime time. But I, I just somehow couldn't bring myself to, you know, be throwing a fly into those waters that uh, I, I had once seen full of sockeye salmon at this time of year, for example. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, and, and once again, I talk about it in the book about, uh, you know, in uh, 1974, being there with my dear friend Ted Harding and, and you know, sockeye flipping continuously, all kinds of them. And then the breaks in the sockeye punctuated by big summer steelhead mm. who do the classic sort of shoulder roll on the surface distinctively different than the than the visual display of the sockeye sort of thing well so there i am a couple of weeks ago out there in prime time good water conditions you know perfect visibility not a sign of a sockeye peak of the season can't see a single sockeye anywhere you know and of course you know didn't even take a rod but uh couldn't bring myself to to have thrown a feather in the water anyhow but you know it just the whole river now looks sterile it just looks sterile to sort of you know somehow you know tarnish or destroy my earlier experiences and that out there it's just not in me to do that is it something that can be fixed with numbers i mean obviously i would imagine you think that we're loving it to death but can we not spin this positive at all can we take the numbers of people who love it and have them do something who's left to love it we are my generation loves it yeah no and and we can communicate to each other what do we do though we look to you guys and we need you guys to tell us what we have to do well here's one thing you never want to do and and you know i i consider myself to have been firmly on the fence on this in years gone by maybe but the business of well you know it's a conservation issue you got to close it well the argument was always, well, you know, you close it, and if you leave it closed for a period of time, you know, the client base goes away and never return. Oh, well, we'll deal with that when we get there. Well, you know what? We're there. You know, the the whole east coast of Vancouver Island was basically shut down several years ago for conservation reasons. I mean, we're 20 years into that now, you know. And uh, you know what happened? Everybody left. They're not coming back. There is nobody out there now. There is no next generation you know, to sort of carry the torch on behalf of Steelhead. We would have been way better off to say, well, you know what, we're going to put, you know, as 
least invasive regulations in places we possibly can. You know, we're going to go, you know, if you have to, we'll, we'll make it an upstream drive life, for goodness sake, you know, whatever it takes. But to keep the opportunity open out there for somebody to go out there. I mean, we can have regulations that will do no harm to the fish, you know, but we chose not to do that. And we're paying the price now. There is nobody left out there. I go to, I've spoken at many fishing game club meetings, for example, over the last, you know, six, eight, ten years. I look around the audience out there. There is nobody of my children's age. It's all me. The demographic is just dead set against any kind of a future client base and, and, you know, voice on behalf of these fish. But, but they are there. I promise you they're there. You just have to find a way to reach them. And a lot of you guys aren't on social media. Maybe you can't reach them. Maybe, maybe they're intimidated by you guys. Maybe, maybe they don't want to feel chastised or criticized. I mean, they're there. I promise you that they want to listen. So how can they do that? Let's move forward. Where, how, how can somebody get in touch with somebody to make a difference? Should they reach out to you direct? How much time do you oh, have, Believe Bob? me, I have zero influence. Zero. <laughs> so who should they reach out to? The government? Yeah, and, and you know, it's uh, that's even more depressing. <laughs> you know, you think, I mean, it, it used to be the Department of Recreation and Conservation and then became the Ministry of Environment. And it was the Ministry of Environment, Lands, and Parks. Well, what is it now? It is the Ministry of Forest, Lands, Natural Resource Operations, and Rural Development. How does that work? Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> the Fish and Wildlife management component of government is so emasculated, so completely buried in the bowels of the forest ministry now that you can't get to them, you know, and, and there's, I mean, who's in a position to be an advocate for fish and fishing within the provincial government these days? You know, it is so sad. I mean, there's, there's, Still some good people in there that have got a few years ahead of them before they can get out the door and they're doing the same things I talked about earlier. Well, how many paychecks until I'm gone? You know, how many months? How many years? You know, that's, there's too many people that are kind of preoccupied that with that now instead of, you know, what kind of a difference can I make? You know, this year, next year, the year after that kind of thought. So you don't think it's too late? It's not complete. Well, I think, you know, for, you know, when I, once again, you know, we look at places like, uh, you know, Vancouver Island, um, open those streams that were closed, open them, advertise the fact that they're open, you know, explain what the population sizes are, you know, explain why we need some very conservative regulations, but encourage people to go fishing. A hundred percent. Bob, I don't want to fish the Bulkley. I spend very few days on the bulk leave. It's not in my own front yard first thing in the morning and last thing at night when I don't have to see any boats. I want to fish that river that only has, and maybe I'm a bad person for this. I would rather fish a river that has a hundred fish and maybe, maybe if I'm really lucky, catch a fish in a week on a dry fly, but I'm exploring. I want to feel like there's nobody else that's been there, even though there's no grass beyond the mountains or what, mm-hmm. what the saying is. I want that, and I don't think I'm alone in that. So I think that, I mean, maybe there is some sort of, maybe it is worth it to encourage people to go exploring. Is it going to cause any harm to get people to dilute and go explore? Yeah, and you know, it depends what their expectations are, I suppose. But I guess that's key, huh? What are what are your if you're listening to this right now? What are your expectations? 
Is it to catch fish? No, not you. (laughs) People listening, why why do you fish? Is it, I think so much of it has to do with your own personal journey. Like when I was in my teens, I wanted to catch fish. When you were younger, you wanted to catch fish. I've, I'm older now. I want the experience is different for me. I want to, I want to feel, I, I get off on exploring. Maybe it's different for you now. I don't, I don't know your personality. Do you still fish to catch fish or what's your, what is your motive, Bob? Well, you know, I like, you know, the places that I do still go fishing, I like to have the expectation of catching a fish. I'm not driven by the need to, you know, to, you know, fill the bottom of the boat with a bunch of them or something like that if it's the ocean or, you know, or, you know, rip as many lips as I can in the river sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, still, if there's, you know, Bob, eight years ago, you know, the Oak Bay Marine Group coined the, the term, you know, expectation and opportunity. And that's really what it's all about, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it, if there's no expectation of catching a fish, then what's the point of going? So there, there does need to be an expectation, but, you know, we need to lower that expectation in terms of, you know, well, you know, multiple fish per day or something like that, you know, come fish with me because I'll get you a pile of them and all that sort of thing. No, no, no. You know, you come fish with me because you're going to have an experience that is unequal or, you know, really special or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully this in your book makes people look at themselves and ask what their expectations are. Bob, where can people find your book? Well, you know, it will be, it's supposed to go to print on uh, this Friday and it's supposed to be available on the 22nd of July, I'm told. Okay. And uh, it will be uh, available through the BC Federation of Fly Fishers. Can so, we talk about where proceeds are going? Is that? Yeah, no. The uh, you know the generosity and support of the of the BC Triple F has been just overwhelming in all of this, and uh, you know, in return for their support into into republishing this into somewhat of a you know a coffee table edition kind of book, you know, complete with a limited edition supply. You know, in return for their support and in, in achieving that, then, uh, you know, all revenue from the sales goes directly to the, the BC Federation of Fly Fishers and, uh, to be used for, to support a, a student, you know, pursuing, a, you know, a career in, in fisheries or related environmental discipline or, you know, to contribute to some kind of a habitat based purchase, you know, that benefits, uh, fish and wildlife over time. But, you know, the book will be available through there. You know, anybody can look up the BC Triple F website and, uh, you know, the all instructions there on how to obtain a copy will be right there. Is there anything about the book that you'd like to, to mention or bring up that maybe I've missed? I found it, I found it a lot more, um, reflective than I thought I would. Just let it, putting that out there for people. I, I found it to be a lot more entertaining, personal, a really interesting and refreshing viewpoint from from you i have come to expect you to be oh bob Hooten, you, uh, you, i love you and you drive me crazy all at once i've never had so many times where i've turned to charles and said i'm never talking to him again hey bob how's it going oh i'm never talking to him again how hey bob how's it going because you stir emotions in people i really expected this to be one of those books and i've got to say bob i really enjoyed it it was really interesting to read from a softer point of view, the things that you've seen, I felt it was quite romantic in a lot of ways. And tough bobs right now giving me the look like, oh God, but. Well, thank you for all of that. And, and, uh, I mean, it, it's just, I don't know, it's a, it's just my story. Simple as that. You know, I'm not trying to tell anybody you should do this or you should go there or, you know, this is wrong. That's right. You know, it's just 
it's my story. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week as I sit down with the gals from Orvis to discuss the 50-50 initiative. Head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. to go like just full-blown redneck on these fish. This is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during Chasing the Sun, Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.